I had the pleasure of going to the Basics Conference this past week just outside of Cleveland with a couple other men from Emmanuel, Dave Fuller, our elder chair, and uh, elder nominee Eric Moore. And it was a deeply encouraging, refreshing, revitalizing time. Uh, absolutely blessed to have been there. And I am excited to see the ways that that's going to help to energize Emmanuel and our leadership. And praise God for conferences like that and a church that's willing to send its, its leaders and its men to conferences like that. What a blessing that is. Today, we come to our 19th sermon in the series where we follow Abraham's journey. A journey of faith, a journey where we have seen him go through some very low lows and some very high highs. What a journey it has been. And incredible to think that it all began for Abraham when he was 75 years old. When he left everything behind, everything familiar, all his homeland and his, his family. He left everything comfortable to go into an unknown place with an uncertain future to follow God. And all that he had to go off of, all Abraham had to go off of, were promises made by a God that he did not really know. God's promises to Abraham, his covenant with Abraham, these promises can be put into three distinct categories. Blessing, offspring, and land. You see, in Abraham, God was initiating a plan to restore what was lost in Eden. Everything came crashing down in Eden through the fall, through sin. Adam and Eve, they were to be fruitful and to multiply. They were to fill the earth and to subdue it. They were to have dominion over it. It's God's purpose for humanity on earth. In, in other words, God was commissioning our first parents to transform, transform earth into Eden. The wild world into an ordered paradise under God. The rule of Adam and Eve was to... Bl- the, the, role of Adam and Eve, and their rule was to bless the earth. Their offspring would fill the earth and cover it. And Eden would be the planet. But all that was lost at the fall. And so God, not willing to lose the earth and willing to lose the children of men, no, he intervened and he called out of the people of humanity a man, Abraham, and through him, began a recreative, salvific plan that would take the original plan and make it so much bigger. Again, God's promise to Abraham, blessing, offspring, land. Blessing. Abraham would be both a blessing and be blessed. And as God says in Genesis 12, 3, such a blessing would touch all the families of the earth. Every family on earth would be blessed through Abraham. That's incredible coverage. This promise of nations of the earth. And then the third promise, land. God gave Abraham the promised land. In so doing, he said to Abraham at, at a certain point, look from the place where you are northward, southward, and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you as your offspring forever. 
It's in Genesis 13. But there isn't a single place in Israel where you can stand and survey the entire promised land. That doesn't exist. This was a symbolic way where God was saying that the promised land stretches beyond the horizon. It is more than what you can see, and all of it, all of it is for your innumerable descendants. All Abraham had to do was trust God, follow him, worship him, and indeed, we saw Abraham do this in some very, very powerful and dramatic ways. Yet, we saw, again and again, he didn't do this perfectly, but even still, his trust in God endured and it strengthened through time until at the very end, it saturates him, where now his words are promises of God. We saw that last week. It was for this trust, this faith, that God counted Abraham righteous. Today, as we look at Genesis 25, conclude the journey of Abraham, I want to unpack a few elements, unpack a few elements of Abraham's death. And then I want you to see that the shadows of the Abrahamic covenant are fully revealed in Christ. And this whole journey, the entire time, has been about pointing to Jesus. That's what we want to see today. But let's read this passage, Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 through 11. And you should be glad you're not reading it aloud. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medon, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedon. The sons of Dedon were Ashurim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Henoch, Abida, and Elda, or Elda'ah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Ber Lahiah Roy. Let's pray. This is your word, Father, to which you speak to us. Your word that goes out and does not return to you void. Your word that is enduring, eternal, lasting. Your word that, that has the power to transform and recreate. And these awesome glories, may they happen in our presence this morning. May we not take this for granted. Oh God, speak to us. And where my, my mouth might get in the way, supersede it, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And help our hearing, each one of us, to honor Christ and be transformed by him. 
pray in his name. Amen. You arrive at chapter 25, and you might be surprised that Abraham took another wife, Keturah. And with this woman, he fathered six sons. Now, I don't have very much interest in getting into all of that chronology, but know that the chronology is extremely ambiguous. It does not tell us when Abraham took this wife. Abraham could have taken Keturah as a wife after Sarah's death, though I think that's unlikely. Or he could have had these children with her before God even called them to the promised land. The text is ambiguous, and I let the scholars debate those possibilities. If you're really interested, I'll have a conversation with you after this. But whether it's late or early, the naming of the sons of Keturah comes right at Abraham's death, which is very much like how our obituaries today operate. Right? An obituary is released, and all those that survive the deceased are named. Sons, daughters, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, like we see right here in Genesis 25. And I think that this lineage appearing here is similar in manner. You'll notice also that in verses 12 through 18, after the story of Esau concludes, there's Esau's lineage. Oh, I'm sorry, Ishmael's lineage. Verse 6 Look at that. It says that Abraham sent the sons of Keturah to the east country. Now, that's not back to Mesopotamia. That's southeast into the Arabian Peninsula. And all the names of those sons and grandsons, all of them are historically located in the Arabian Peninsula. Of those sons, Midian is the most notable for sure. Centuries later, the, when, when Israel has become a nation, the Midianites are a bitter enemy to the Israelites. And yet, when Moses flees Egypt, he goes and he hides in the land of Midian. And there, he takes a wife for himself. He marries a Midianite. Does this sound familiar? Lot was brought back into the covenant people because Boaz married a Moabite, one of Lot's descendants, and now Moses marries a descendant of Keturah. Keturah, who is Abraham's concubine wife. Verse 1 says Keturah is a wife. Verse 6 calls her a concubine. So she's not a rightful wife, not like Sarah. She's a concubine wife, more like Hagar. And I imagine she was around to provide children while Sarah could not, and perhaps before the promised land. Now again, we see Abraham taking concubines, these concubine wives, but this is not condoning polygamy or polyamorous relationships. It's just citing that it happened. And when you look closely at it, you see that polygamy always produces strife. It's producing strife here, or will produce strife here, both the sons of Hagar and, and Keturah endure as Israel's enemies, as the enemies of the offspring of Sarah. And so we are, we are shown that polygamy is always against God's design. He does not hold covenant with the polygamous children or the children of polygamy. He only holds covenant with the son of Abraham's rightful wife, Sarah. He only holds covenant with Isaac. And Isaac, 
the son of the covenant, the son of the rightful wife, is called the one and only son. Thus, Abraham only gives gifts to the sons of his concubines, but to Isaac, the covenant son, Abraham gives all that he has, everything he owns, which is an incredible fortune. We've been seeing this again and again. Abraham has an incredible fortune. Now it all goes to Isaac, but more than that, far more than that, Isaac is inheriting the eternal, everlasting covenant blessings God will work now through Isaac in his covenant, salvific, recreative purposes on earth. But first, first God will call Abraham out of the land one final time. Look at verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham, Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. I believe Anita Seberg is 104. That's amazing. Our oldest member, Abraham, died at 175 years. We can hardly imagine it. He surely was a blessed man, full of years. Remember when Abraham entered the promised land? I've already said it. He was 75 years old. Then when he turned 100, a son was born to him, Isaac. Now, in this passage, we see that Isaac is 75 years old. So Abraham lived for 100 years in the promised land. Isaac, his son, 75 years old, now sets out on his own journey, the same age that his father set out on his own journey. I think that's wonderful symmetry. Later in the same chapter, in Genesis 25, 26, we learn that Isaac was 60 years old when his twin sons were born, Jacob and Esau. So upon Abraham's death, we realize something. The three patriarchs lived together in the promised land for 15 years, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Abraham... Upon Abraham's death, the text marks his death with three different verbs. See that in verse, verses 7 and 8. It says that he died, he breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. This kind of poetic repetition is adding to the solemnity of the moment. God has called his very first patriarch, the man of faith, home and his years of wandering have ceased and all of his hopes are now realized, he has arrived. And of those three verbs marking Abraham's death, one of them whispers of eternity. Abraham was gathered to his people. It's an indication that there is some immortal element of man, a hint that there's something that will be united to ancestors long past. But Genesis only ever casts shadows whispers of an afterlife, shadows that will be expanded and elaborated upon as God's progressive revelation continues to unfold for his people. 
And as time passed, many ancient Jews certainly did come to believe in an afterlife and understood eternity, even resurrection. And they understood that everyone who died in righteousness, like like Abraham, would be gathered together with Abraham in everlasting life. And so they called this paradise Abraham's bosom or Abraham's rest because there that first patriarch who was righteous waited for the righteous. Another way to say that those who shared in Abraham's righteousness will forever rest in paradise. Verse 9, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Hmm. There's so much that's, you know, in the subtext here that's deeply relatable. As far as Scripture informs us, Isaac and Ishmael are estranged. Abraham sent Ishmael away when Ishmael was about 17 years old, and so we've heard nothing from him since. And it's more than 70 years later, he returns to bury the father that banished him. And that's a story that goes down through the ages. Estranged family members gathering together to bury the family's dead. And all the emotional complications that come with such an occasion. Isaac and Ishmael returned to the cave where Abraham had buried his beloved wife, the only land that Abraham had ever owned in the promised land, this small cave that now receives the family's remains. And Isaac and Ishmael lay the body of their father beside Sarah's bones. And right here, the cave of Machpelah, Ishmael's story stops and he vanishes into history and all that's left of him is the genealogy that we read about in verses 12 through 18. But he is not the blessed son. Isaac is the blessed son and his story continues. Look at verse 11. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Ber Lahai Roy. The patriarchal pattern, which will be repeated many times, is that the father blesses the son, passing covenantal blessings from father to son. And so you see Isaac bless Jacob, and there was a whole debacle around that. You see uh, Joseph bless his two boys. Jacob blesses his 12 sons. But Abraham never directly blesses Isaac. Instead, Genesis 25, 11, God passes the blessing himself onto Isaac. The heavenly father passes the blessing onto this covenant son. And with this passing of blessing, the covenantal transition is complete. Abraham, I'm sorry, Isaac has replaced Abraham as the bearer of covenant blessing, as the father of innumerable offspring, as the possessor of the land. Abraham's calling is now going to continue through his son, Isaac. It will continue, but it will not be fulfilled. Covenantal calling 
It's not going to be fulfilled by Isaac, and it's not going to be fulfilled by Jacob, and it's not even going to be fulfilled by a nation of Israel. They will never see the covenant with Abraham fully fulfilled. They will only see these shapes and shadows, and they will try, and they will get far, but as far as they go, it is never even close. Indeed, for as glorious as the Abrahamic covenant was, it was only a shadow of some greater future coming covenant that God himself would establish among men. In other words, this coming covenant would swallow the covenant that came before it. And we should ask, why? Why this design? Why not just allow the Abrahamic covenant to be fulfilled, to to let it be achieved? Why swallow it with something else? Do you know why? Because the people of God thought that they could fulfill it, that they could achieve it, that they could make it happen. And so they tried to expand their boundaries, their land with swords and geopolitics and fill the earth with a pure bloodline and get get God's blessing by earning it. They thought they could do it. But this covenant was meant to come by faith, not by human works. And it's not just the Jews. The Jews represent all of us who are bent on doing it ourselves Earning, working, achieving, self-reliant, self-righteousness. That's the story of humanity. And that, at least in part, is why God delivered the law to the Jews. 613 commandments that prove to us that we are not righteous. We deserve Sodom, not Eden. Nothing we can do can make ourselves righteous. What we need, what we need is to trust in this God who so proves himself to be faithful and merciful. Our only hope is to trust and believe in God and his promises, just as Abraham demonstrated. We cannot make the covenant happen. We must trust. And yet every human being is sin-twisted into self-centeredness, No one is inclined to seek after God like Abraham did. And faithful Jews, they understood this. The greatest king that the Jews ever produced, David, wrote these words. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. I wonder if you can hear that, that that is an inverse of the Abrahamic covenant. Blessing offspring land. Of all the children of man that cover the entire face of the earth, all of them have become corrupted. All have fallen away. And to be crystal clear, when it says that no one seeks after God, it means that it is an act of our wills. We willingly choose anything apart from God, anything else other than God. 
be it pleasure or comfort or security or man's praise or whatever, el- or whatever else, anything will do. We want that. We don't want God because we can control it. So we think. We certainly do not want to submit to God's will and his ways. <laughs> and if our modern society is not a shining example of that, then nothing is. Humanity does not want to leave everything behind that we have worked for to follow an invisible God into a land that only bears fruit by faith. Never. For our wicked self-reliance and pursuit of pleasures in anything other than God, we are not the children of God. We are the children of wrath. And in the scene most troubling, we all learned what wrath we deserve when God rained fire on Sodom. Like we saw with Lot, wrath's only escape is through a salvation that God provides. The children of men need not die. We saw this so clearly, so powerfully, when Abraham took his son, his only son, up to that altar of death, climbing the heights of Moriah, where God provided a substitute, a sacrifice to remove humanity's fiery death. And this was a shadow pointing to a time when God would send his one and only son, a descendant of Abraham, to take our place, to take God's wrath, Jesus, the perfectly righteous man standing in place of the unrighteous. He died our death in the most humiliating manner conceivable, executed upon the cross of a contemptible criminal. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus cast himself upon our death into the fires of God's wrath, knowing that he would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He took it all. He bore every ounce of it. And yet, death did not defeat the Son of God, but he rises in glorious victory on the third day. And now, having resurrected in his own redounding righteousness, Christ extends forgiveness and righteousness to any who would believe. For our sake, the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. We believe in this most gracious work of Christ, that Christ loved us and he gave himself for us. Then God counts us righteous. And there is no blessing greater than that. That God would count you, sinner, righteous. Every covenant blessing as a a result comes streaming into your soul. We are made righteous 
Our sins are forgiven and we possess a peace that surpasses all understanding and we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The glories of heaven now are your blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Heaven has been emptied into the hearts of men. And I wonder if you saw that God's promise of blessing first spoken to Abraham now it rests upon us who believe. The Abrahamic covenant has been swallowed in the glory of Christ. And it extends now to all humanity. So Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. And all those who by faith come to Jesus and are blessed, these are the offspring of Abraham According to this now many times in the sermon series, our faith in Jesus is the same type of faith held by Abraham, our spiritual father, Galatians 3, 26 through 29. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no female, male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So by our union with Christ, we are the offspring of Abraham. We are the innumerable descendants, the countless stars Abraham once gazed upon from afar. We Jews and Gentiles, we lofty and lowly, we male and female, we who are one in Christ are heirs of Abraham, heirs of all the promises of God. And if that's blessing and offspring, and if we are the children of Abraham, blessed by the mercies of God, then we too are in pursuit of something, a promised land. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went in to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. What was Abraham doing in the promised land? Wandering about from Shechem to Hebron to everywhere else? The writer of Hebrews tells us that most fundamentally, Abraham was looking for a city. A city not made by human hands, but made by God himself. And where shall we find this city? Where was Abraham looking? I tell you, truly, truly, it's here. present. 
just as you received the blessing of faith. And you are Abraham's offspring by faith. So too do you enter into the city of the living God by faith. Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect like Abraham, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Listen again to the tense of that language. You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have already. If you have come to Jesus in faith, it's like Jesus himself said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The promised land does not lie in some future paradise or some distant land. It is here, brothers and sisters, just as it surrounded Abraham in his day, so it surrounds us now in our day. In Christ, yours is the blessing. In Christ, you are the offspring. And in Christ, you dwell in the land of promise. But just like Abraham... The land is not yet fully possessed by the covenant offspring. And so Christ, the founder of a better covenant, he has commissioned us to go into all the earth and make disciples. He says, as the covenant bearer, as the Lord of all the earth, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We do not advance this kingdom on the edge of a sword. We advance it with righteousness and peace and joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as more and more people are drawn to Christ, who stands as a beacon for the nations, as they hear our testimony, disciples are made. Covenant offspring multiply, and they are blessed. And from them, blessings flow like rivers of living water, turning this corrupted earth into Eden. Yes, as the church is, the faith, is faithful to Christ's commission, all things are being made new. Heaven and earth are united and Eden is returning. And all these glories seen in the shadows of Abraham, this first patriarch. He was willing to leave everything behind. He was willing to trust God with all that he had and all that he was. And God counted him as righteous. It isn't different for us. It is the same. So we must follow this patriarch into the promised land where there will be blessing and much fruit. But more than Abraham, 
We follow Christ. We follow Christ into victory, into righteousness, and into the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we follow him, the glory of the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And one day, brothers and sisters, heaven will come. And all will be consummated and completed. But that day is not today. The sun is high and there is work to do. The journey is not complete. And when it is time to lay your bones to rest, will heaven remember you for your faithfulness to God's call? Or will you have squandered your time on earth with trivialities and fleeting moments? Even at 75, you are not too young. Abraham was just getting started. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. What will you do? Hmm. Next week, we're going to embark on another sermon series, and we're going to follow another man moving from Abraham to David, from the Abrahamic covenant to the Davidic covenant. And we're going to go into the realm of anointed kings and their mighty men. And I am looking forward to this coming series. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great work among men that is dynamic and electric and alive within us and around us. We praise you, Father, that by your grace you have called us and are working. Oh God, help us to be faithful to this calling with courage, with boldness of faith, move forward, even if it means we sacrifice the things that are comfortable or familiar. Let us honor Christ with all that we have. It takes us to the ends of the earth. Let us honor our, our King. Thank you for this work begun in Abraham, fulfilled in Christ, living in us. Praise you for your mercies. In Jesus' name, amen.